0: Hello everybody, this is Dan Trotter, Pretty Good Bible Studies. In this audio, I'm going to cover Galatians 5, verses 1 through 15. We will simply entitle it Freedom in Christ, because Paul is going to shift from his denunciations of slavery under the law, which we can say is his theme in the first four chapters, and now he's going to talk about the good stuff. What happens when you get free from the law? What it's like to be free in Christ and free in the Spirit? To walk in the Spirit rather than to walk in slavery under the law. Our context is this. At the very end of chapter 4, Paul gave us the the allegory of Sarah and Hagar. Sarah having a son based on promise. The son was Isaac. He stood for Sarah and Isaac stood for freedom in Christ, whereas there was a child of the flesh born of Hagar the concubine. When when Abraham and Sarah tried to fulfill the covenant of God through the flesh by short-circuiting God's plan and coming up with a plan to get a concubine, pregnant with Ishmael. And so we start now in Galatians 5 verse 1. Christ has liberated us to be free. Stand free then and don't submit again to a yoke of slavery. That's freedom and slavery, freedom and slavery, law and grace, law and grace, law and slavery, grace is free. Law and promise, law and promise, law and slavery, promise is free. Freedom. NIV says it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. It's a little bit repetitious there. The Holman Christian Study Bible Gives us some synonyms for freedom. Christ has liberated us to be free. Either way, it's freedom that's being emphasized. Stand firm. That means stand firm against this these terrible legalistic Judaizers who are destroying your freedom in, in the Galatian churches. Don't submit again to a yoke of slavery. Don't go back under the law and say you've got to be circumcised in order to be sl- saved. Well, don't do that. We go now to verse 2. Paul says this. Take note. I, Paul... Tell you that if you get yourself circumcised, Christ will not benefit you at all. Take note, then Ivy has. Mark my words. In other words, I'm getting ready to tell you something important, guys. If you get yourself circumcised, Christ will not benefit you at all. What do you need Jesus for? Circumf- si- circumcision gets you saved. What do you need Jesus' death on the cross? His justifying, atoning death to declare you righteous, to justify you before God the Father. What's the point of all that? If, you, if you're saved by cutting your foreskins off. Now, Paul is, of course, talking about getting circumcised for salvation. He is not talking about getting circumcised for reasons of ministry expediency to minister well. He himself circumcised Timothy in order to not cause an uproar among the Jews. We read in Acts 16, 3a, the account of this. Paul desired this one to go forth with him. This is Timothy he's talking about on the second journey. Paul desired Timothy to go on the second journey, and taking him, he circumcised him. Why? Because of the Jews being in those places, they would have raised Cain, caused Paul a lot of grief, so he says, let's just avoid the grief, get circumcised. But he wasn't telling Timothy, hey, if you don't get circumcised, you're going to hell. He didn't say that. When he says, I, Paul, tell you, he emphasizes his name because he's emphasizing the fact that, hey, I'm an apostle of Christ. I've had the heavenly vision on the road to Damascus, folks, you might want to listen to me. Paul's authority was constantly being questioned because the devil hates authority, he hates godly authority, and he will... Fight against it by making godly authority abusive authority or godly authority no authority at all. Authority is an extremely important concept in the Scripture. And in our libertarian, liberty-loving America, where liberty is 90 times, 95% of the time turned into license, it's good to emphasize that. Christians always have to fight against their culture because culture always goes to sinful extremes. It's a little bit different in China. They, they emphasize authority so much, well, there's no freedom. This idea that Christ will not benefit you if you go back under the law is stated by Paul also in Galatians two twenty one. I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died for nothing. It's a waste of his time. All that pain and agony he went under the cross, what's the point? If all you have to do is cut your foreskin off to get saved? Well then what was Jesus doing up on the cross for? Galatians 5.3, again, I testify to every man who gets himself circumcised that he is obligated to keep the entire law. Now, what Paul says here is, okay, you want to keep the law? Keep it with your own actions without Christ? Well, circumcise yourself, but then you might as well finish doing the rest of the stuff the law does. And guess what? You ain't going to be able to do it. When Paul says, I testify to every man, John Gill points out this is a form of an oath. He's swearing by God and calling him as a witness, as Paul was wanting to do when he got real serious about things. He's obligated to keep the entire law. Why? Because the Old Testament law is a unit. Submission to it cannot be selective, as the NIV Study Bible so rightly says. And, of course, when I read that, I think, well, what about all those Reformed theologians who are always dividing the law up? It's the ceremonial, the judicial, the moral aspect of the law. Of course, the covenant theologians say that we are free from two-thirds of the law. We are free from the ceremonial and judicial aspects, but we're still obligated to the moral part of the law. And, of course, the problem with that is it's nigh impossible to distinguish the moral from the ceremonial and civil law. In fact, I've got a YouTube video on this subject, New Covenant Theology, and I found three great quotes from Reformed theologians themselves who said you can't make a distinction, you can't split them out. They're all mixed together. The law is a unit. You don't divide it up, Reformed covenant theologians. You can't do it. Now, let's look at some scriptures that show that you can't divide the law up. James 2.10. For whoever keeps the entire law, James says, yet fails in one point, is guilty of breaking it all. So, once you start the circumcision route, circumcise yourself, Galatians, you might as well start thinking about keeping it all. And guess what? You're not going to be able to do it. Galatians 3.10. For all who rely on the words of the law are under a curse. Because it is written, everyone who does not continue doing everything written in the book of the law is cursed. Now, Paul adds that everything, he's quoting Deuteronomy 27:26, which doesn't have everything. Deuteronomy 26:27:26 26, 26 says this, anyone who does not put the words of this law into practice is cursed. It doesn't say everything of this law. Now, you can either say that Paul is making Moses stronger, which is what a lot of New Covenant theologians like to say, or a covenant theologians say, no, 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 Paul doesn't mess with the law of Moses because it's still in effect. The moral one-third of it is still in effect today. Well, I don't know what Paul is doing here. It could be that everything is implied in, in Deuteronomy 27, 26, and Paul is just making that everything explicit in Galatians 3.10. doesn't matter. We're under the law of Christ. We're under what the apostles say. And Paul says, you've got to keep everything in the law if you're going to, if you're going to be justified. Galatians five, four. You who are trying to be justified by the law are alienated from Christ. You have fallen from grace. What does alienated mean? Alienated means there's a wall of separation. If you're alienated from your spouse in a divorce contest, it means you don't talk to her anymore. Alienated. You don't talk to aliens from Mars, and Christ is as far away from you as an alien is from Mars. If you're trying to be justified by the law, there's no relationship there. There's no love there. It's all do, 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 cold and harsh, icy cold is your relationship. Actually, you don't even have a relationship. Because once you try to get justified by cutting your foreskin off, you have fallen from grace. Now, I can't tell you how many times that phrase has been taken out of context. Oh, you've fallen from grace means you've fallen from salvation. It does not mean that. There are very few times in my notes where I put all caps in there because I don't like to shout at myself, but I got it here. Quote, it has absolutely nothing to do with losing your salvation, in all caps. Why? Why? because it's talking about going from a state of freedom into a state of legalism, a state of slavery. That's how you get alienated from Christ. It doesn't mean you lose your salvation. Context is king here, folks. Paul's not talking about losing salvation. He's talking about Galatians trying to get back under the law. Let me give you some analogies which will illustrate this. I got, I've got two. Here's one. A wife becomes alienated from her husband. Does that mean they aren't married anymore? No, it just means they're not talking to each other. You well, know, like a thousand country songs i've listened to that that happens all the time doesn't mean they're not married they still got to go to divorce court if they're going to get divorced well jesus ain't going to let he's not going to let his children be emancipated just because they act like a bunch of idiots they're still his children however he's not going to talk to them in nice dulcet tones god's voice to his rebellious children is going to be a little bit harsher just like it is with human parents All right, but anyway, the first analogy, a wife can be alienated from a husband, but she's still married to him, just like a Christian can be alienated from Christ when he gets back under the law, but he's still a Christian. Likewise, a free man, analogy number two here, a free man can go from the state of freedom to a state of slavery. He can sell himself into slavery, let's say debt slavery, like in the Old Testament times, but he's still alive. He's a slave, but he's still alive, just like a Christian is a slave when he's under the law, but he's still alive. Galatians 5, 5. For through the Spirit, by faith, we eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. Let's look at those three words in this short verse. Spirit, faith, and righteousness. Let me give you, that's the positive triplet. Let me give you the negative triplet. If we contrast Spirit with law, if we contrast faith with works, and if we contrast righteousness with sin or death, sin, sin, sin slash death, you have the perfect contrast of what Paul is talking about in the book of Galatians, as well as the book of Romans. In fact, if you did a computer search on spirit, faith, and righteousness and see how they're correlated with law, works, and sin and death and how they're correlated with each other, I can just imagine, you know, big data people, marketing people who love to do this kind of stuff with computers. I bet you would find a nice little cluster map because in the Scripture, walking by the Spirit, by faith, giving you righteousness is what Paul emphasizes in the positive and the negative he preaches against, walking by law, using works, which result in sin and death. Perfect contrast. Now, this righteousness that Paul is talking about in Galatians 5 is not just our righteousness now. And, of course, righteousness can be either legal, justification, you're declared righteous, legal righteousness in the eyes of God, and actual righteousness, which, is, of course, is sanctification. Well, sanctification is a process, starting, now, starting at the date of your salvation, and which continues all the way up until the date of your death, the date of your glorification, well, Paul is talking about the ultimate end of righteousness, which we call glorification. He says the hope of righteousness. What is hope? It's a confident expectation of the future. It's the common definition of it. It's the future you can't see, but you have a confident expectation that you're going to get there. And Paul says we eagerly wait for it. In other words, I can't wait until I'm glorified in i with Jesus and I, can, I don't have to fight sin anymore. I don't have to pray in the Spirit that I can walk in righteousness. I don't have to be tempted by sin anymore or my woke leftist, or my fire ant, about all the things that annoy us in this veil of tears. Hot diggity dog, I can't wait. That should be our attitude as we wait for our eschatological fulfillment, and put it that way, as we wait for when we get to see Jesus face to face. I always like to take a sneak peek with all those near-death experiences. Oh, I saw a theologian in seminary said, Oh, these things aren't scriptural. Well, some of them aren't, but I'm talking about the Christian ones. I've got no reason to doubt what they're saying, what they saw. Too much evidence, folks. I like evidence. I used to be a lawyer, and there's nothing that turns me on better than evidence. And the evidence is that there is an afterlife with Jesus, and there's an afterlife of hell without Jesus, and hell ain't pretty, and heaven is wonderful. This hope that Paul talks about, the NIV third Bible says this is the only place in Galatians where he talks about the end, eschatological an eschatological statement at the end. It's, this is the only place. In Romans he mentions the end, in hope. Romans 8:24. Now in this hope, and Paul refers there to the redemption of our bodies, the resurrection of our bodies. Now in this hope we were saved, yet hope that is seen is not hope, because who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we eagerly wait for it with patience. There's that eagerly wait for it with endurance and with impatience. We put up with the crapola that we have to put up with here on this planet Because we know that some good stuff is coming at the end. We eagerly wait in Galatians 5.5 and Romans 8.25. We eagerly wait. Galatians 5.6. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision accomplishes anything. What matters is faith working through love. Faith, of course, is the opposite of works. And works is law. And works is circumcision. And circumcision of the flesh is a work. And... Paul says that doesn't mean a ding-dong-damble thing whether you've got your foreskin clipped or not. It doesn't matter. What matters is how much you believe and how much you trust Jesus. And, of course, your faith there is a believing faith, a trusting faith. It works through love, love of Christ, love of other people. The Barnes says is both love of God and love of other people. It's not a dead intellectual faith. Let's talk about that dead mere intellectual ascent which this is not the kind of faith that Paul was talking about, James two eighteen nineteen. 19. But some of them will say, You have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without works, and I will show you faith from my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. The demons also believe and they shudder. Well, yeah, that doesn't mean intellectual. Yeah, the demons believe that Jesus exists, but that doesn't mean they love him. Here's a couple of concise ways to express the relationship between faith and works. We are justified by faith alone, but not by faith that is alone. Well, that's nice. I like the one I made up better because it rhymes. Works are the fruit of our salvation. They are not the root of our salvation, which should be obvious. When Paul says that neither circumcision nor uncircumcision accomplishes anything, He's expressing the same thought that is expressed elsewhere in the scriptures. For example, in Galatians 5, 2, four verses earlier, which we just read, take note, I, Paul, tell you that if you get yourself circumcised, Christ will not benefit you at all. It it does not accomplish anything, he says in verse six and verse two he says, It will not benefit you at all. It's a waste of your time to cut your foreskins off. Galatians six fifteen, for both circumcision and uncircumcision mean nothing. What matters instead is a new creation the born-again, new, and living way that comes when Jesus' Holy Spirit makes an inseparable union, an imperishable union with your spirit, and you are born again with the imperishable Word of God unto eternal life that lasts forever and ever and ever, world without end. That means a lot. That's, that's a lot better, folks, than just slicing your foreskin off. First Corinthians seven nineteen, Circumcision does not matter, matter and uncircumcision does not matter. But keeping God's commands does matter. So Paul's very big on this thing about circumcision not mattering. Now when he says neither circumcision nor uncircumcision accomplishes anything, some people have come up with an interesting idea. For example, Jameson Fawcett and Brown, and I do not believe that they're right in this. I warned you in advance. Jameson Fawcett and Brown says that this must mean that there are people out there that Paul is dealing with are going around, Gentiles, going around saying, "Hey." If you want to get into heaven, you've got to be uncircumcised. Well, now that's taking it too far the other way. The Jew, If this were the case, it would be Jews are saying you've got to be legalistic Jews, Judaizers are saying that you've got to be circumcised in order to be saved. And I, I guess I could call them hyper-Gentiles are saying, no, you've got to be uncircumcised to be saved. And it's neither one. It's right in the middle. It doesn't matter one way or the other. I mean, after all, Paul circumcised Timothy, as we've seen. He also t- circumcised those four I don't know if he circumcised him, but he paid the Nazarite vows of four people in Jerusalem after his third journey. So, Paul's not going that far. What he's saying is, it doesn't matter. Do your cultural stuff. We don't care. It doesn't matter. Galatians 5, 7, and 8. You were running well, Paul tells the Galatians, who prevented you from obeying the truth. This persuasion did not come from the one who called you. And, of course, the one who called you would be God or Jesus. And when he says who... Prevented you from obeying the truth. He's not looking for information. He knows who prevented them from obeying the truth. The Judaizer. It's a rhetorical question. Who prevented you from obeying the truth? He's, he's using the metaphor of a running race, a track race. And then IV says, who cut in on you? Uh, that's a loose translation there, I think. But at any rate, the point is, is you were running well. Paul compares the Christian life to running a race and you were doing fine. And oh, all of a sudden you were obeying the truth. Jesus is the truth. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Who prevented you from obeying Jesus, in other words? These legalizers did. This persuasion of legalism did not come from Jesus who called you. Remember that call? They've all experienced the call of Jesus. You know, the Reformed theologians break call into two kinds. The effectual call, that's the one that goes out to believers and they respond. The What's the other one? Not the ineffectual call. The the external call. I can't remember what the word they use is. But it's the call that goes out to the whole world to be saved. Of course, not everybody answers that. But this here is talking about a call that came to the Galatians to call them into salvation. And Paul, again, is appealing to their experience, their Christian experience. They know Jesus. They knew him. And they're getting ready to run away from him. This idea of the Christian life being compared to running a race, Paul loves this metaphor. In Galatians two two. he says this, I went up according to a revelation presented to them, that's the people in Jerusalem, The gospel I preach among the Gentiles, but privately to those recognized as leaders, so that I might not be running or have run the race in vain. Philippians 2.16, hold firmly to the message of life, then I can boast in the day of Christ that I didn't run or labor for nothing. There's labor in there too. Running's not easy, it's like work. So Paul compares running and labor. You know, this idea that the Christian life is a bed of roses, I don't know where people get that idea from. But Paul calls it running a race. And if you ever run a track, I've run. I ran five miles once. It liked to kill me as an adult. And when I was a kid in P.E. they made us run around this track. And I'll never forget that. I said, this is just pure tea hell. I hate this. <laughs> so, you know, running the Christian race, I mean, it takes discipline and effort. And it's not comfortable. Why do we do it? is for the prize at the end, and that feels pretty good if you ever won. I never won a race, but I imagine if I did win a race, it would be good. That's why people run all these marathons. I always look at them and think they're a bunch of masochists, but they love it because they want that that prize at the end. 1 Corinthians 9.24, don't you know that the runners in the stadium all race, but only one receives the prize? Run in such a way to win the prize. Philippians 3.14, I pursue as my goal the prize promised by God's heavenly call in Christ Jesus. So there's the metaphor of running the race. And the Galatians were running well, and then they screwed up. They started stumbling and getting blocked by the Judaizers. Verse 9 of Galatians 5, a little yeast leavens the whole lump of dough. And of course, here he's talking about the Judaizers. He says, yeah, all of you might not be Judaizers. All of you might not be legalists, but it doesn't take me just a few of them before all of you are going to be spouting that nonsense and screwing up the faith of all these good Christians in the churches of Galatians. So watch yourselves. Get rid of that yeast. Even as a Jew during the time of the Passover searches his house, his family and him search for the house looking for leaven so they can toss it out. Well, you do the same thing with these legalizers. Toss them out. Get rid of them. This was a proverb that was pretty much in use with the Jews. A little yeast leavens the whole lump. In scripture, this proverb usually, but not always, reflects something bad. I'm going to give you three scriptures where it's something bad. Mark 8.15, the first one. Then he commanded them, watch out, beware of the yeast of the Pharisees and the yeast of Herod. Obviously, what the Pharisees were teaching is bad stuff. And what Herod was doing to the Christians was bad stuff. 1 Corinthians, or not the Christians, but the followers of Jesus. 1 Corinthians 5, six. your boasting is not good. Don't you know that a little yeast permeates the whole batch of dough, either the boasting of their philosophy and their oratory or whatever it was they were boasting about, I think right here in First Corinthians 5, he's talking about the fact that they didn't exercise church discipline against the man who was sleeping with his, his stepmother, and Paul says, hey, a little bit of least, you let that one guy get away with that, pretty soon you all of you are going to be shacking up with somebody that accepts your wife, so don't do it. Matthew sixteen twelve. Then they understood that he did not tell them to beware of the yeast in bread, but the teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees. That's when they forgot to take bread and boat crossing the Lake the Sea of Galilee. And he says, "Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees." So the yeast, leaven's old-fashioned word for yeast. So the teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees spread just like the yeast through a lump. So that's the trouble with evil. It's not stable. It's not. Fixed. It's dynamic. It moves, spirals down, down, down like the water, like the toilet water going down a toilet hole. That's what evil will take you with. It starts out slow and it goes faster and faster until you are flushed and you are ruined and you are in a septic tank. Here are some scriptures where... The leaven of yeast is a good thing, Matthew thirteen thirty-three. He told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like yeast that a woman took and mixed into 50 pounds of flour until it spread through all of it. Well, the kingdom of heaven, that's a good thing. And the metaphor there means the kingdom of heaven starts small and then it just spreads and it spreads. So the point here, a point I would like to make is that we emphasize the negative so much and there's nothing wrong with that as long as you also emphasize the good. Sure, evil spreads like yeast, but so does the kingdom. We've got to remember that. We are the winners. The devil is the loser. The world, the flesh, and the devil are going to fall before the all-conquering, presence, the victorious march of Jesus Christ and his saints over this earth. We are the winners. We might be despised now. We might be in jail now. We might not have any positions of influence in the academy or in the government, but we are going to win. We need to remember that. Galatians 5.10. I have confidence in the Lord you will not accept any other view. In other words, any other view but my view. That's confidence, folks. I have confidence in the Lord. Now now, He's got confidence in himself that his view is right. But here he's talking about his confidence that you Galatians. I have confidence in you Galatians that you're not going to listen to these Judaizers. But whoever it is that is confusing you will pay the penalty. Now here, it's interesting, it's not the Judaizers, it's the Judaizer. It's one person, whoever actually checked out the Greek to make sure it was singular because it doesn't sound like singular. You would think it would be plural, but in the Greek it's it's singular. And John Gill and Adam Clark and James and Foster Brown all point that out because it's not in the English it sounds like plural. A lot of Judaizers. But here apparently there's one guy spreading his garbage, his bad yeast, his bad leaven through the church. And Paul says, Hey, you're gonna pay the price, buddy. Paul does not mince words. He's not a wussy puss new evangelical. He knows that sin has its consequences, especially when you're messing with the children of God. Now, what that penalty is is not said. It could be punishment in this world, could be condemnation in hell in the next world. I don't know what Paul means. He probably didn't have any idea when he said it. He just says you're gonna pay God. If whatever the punishment's gonna be, it's up to God. You're gonna pay, my friend. Now, when Paul says he has confidence that they are going to obey him, the gospel of freedom, and not the gospel, and not the false gospel of slavery, despite all the severe warnings he's given them. and his his statement that he was worried that his labor had been in vain. But in the end, he says, but I've got confidence in you guys. You're going to come back to the truth. Now, there's a good application point here. When chewing someone out, it's always good to give them encouragement that they can change. Paul always did that, especially did that in Corinth. Man, I mean, the Corinthian church is so screwed up. It takes me 10 minutes just to list all their sins. But Paul calls them brothers. He calls them saints, sanctified. and And he says, hey, thanks be to God. You got it all straight. Now, this thing about having confidence in the Lord in verse 10 reminds me of Galatians 4.11 when Paul says, I am fearful for you that perhaps any labor for you has been wasted. Now, how can he be fearful in verse 4 and in verse 5, have confidence? Well, and also there's another point that comes up. How can he be fearful when Jesus says, don't worry about anything? Is it fear, the opposite of trusting God? Is it fear, worry? And didn't Jesus say that worry was a sin in the Sermon on the Mount? Well, I think we have to distinguish. There's a kind of a fear that where you are in terror and you have no confidence and you're scared to death and your stomach's all screwed up, you know. And then there's the fear, I'm afraid you might be right. You know, we say that all the time. I'm afraid you might be right. That doesn't mean I'm scared to death that you might be right. It's just that I'm paying attention to what you're saying and I, and there's a good chance that you might be right. I'm focusing on what you're saying. So when Paul, when Paul says in Galatians 4.11, I'm fearful for you, he means... I am paying attention to you. I have concern for you is another way we could say it. That's not really fear. Concern and focus on a bad situation, acknowledging that things might get worse, might not go the way you want them to. That's not really fear in the sense that Jesus said you're feared for your next cup of water or bite of bread. It's a little bit different. At any rate, Paul says, I'm fear for you in verse 4, but in Galatians 5, he says, I have confidence that you are not going to go the other way. Now, of course, Paul doesn't know that the Galatians are going to fly right. He just thinks they're going to fly right, but he has confidence they're going to do it. He doesn't know with absolute mathematical certainty, but he thinks they're going to fly right. We go now to verse 11 in Galatians 5. Now, brothers, he calls them brothers. He's being real nice to them as he chews them out. If I still preach circumcision, why am I still persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been abolished. Now, apparently, as John Gill points out, apparently somebody is accusing Paul of being inconsistent. Some of the false teachers were probably saying, hey, you're teaching freedom in one place and legalism in another. He's obviously not teaching legalism to the Galatians in Galatians. But it could be that his his actions with Timothy and with the four men in Jerusalem, where he compromised, well, he didn't compromise, I'm sorry, where he became weak for the sake of the Jews, let's put it that way, that might have been misinterpreted and say, see there, he's preaching legalism there. You've got to follow the law. But here in other churches, in Galatian churches, he's not preaching the law. And so he's being accused of preaching circumcision. He's being accused of preaching legalism. And Paul denies that in verse 11, Galatians 5. Now let's look at the places where he could be accused of being a legalist. Acts sixteen three. Paul wanted Timothy to go with him. This is when he picked up Timothy at the beginning of the second German journey, either in Lystra or Derby, it's not clear, in Acts 16. He wanted Timothy to go with him, so he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places. So people could say, see, there, he's teaching legalism. No, but we know that he did that because of the Jews, not because of, he didn't tell Timothy, you need to get circumcised to get saved. He told Timothy, hey, we don't want opposition from the Jews, so let's just save a lot of trouble here, and get you circumcised. That's like one time I went to China, the guy I was going with said, you know, the cops can identify foreigners better when they have beers. They say, look at that guy, that guy with the satchel full of money. And got that guy with the bibles in his backpack he's the guy with a beard arrest him well i think i thought it was ridiculous at the time but of course i won under a hardy, so i said okay and i had to shave my beard now there was nothing sinful about having a beard and not a beard having a beard and not having a beard what is that? It's nothing but just for the sake of not offending the commies i cut my beard so paul did the same thing with timothy then in acts 21 23 through 24 we read this therefore do what we tell you this is the jerusalem elders talking to paul we have four men who have obligated themselves with a vow, a Jewish vow under the law. Take these men, purify yourself along with them, and pay for them to get their head shaved, and everyone will know that what they were told about you amounts to nothing, that, that, that you yourselves are also careful about observing the law. Yeah, Paul was careful about observing the law, but not for salvation, to keep fanatical Jews from wrecking his ministry. That's why he was careful about ju- judging the law. Because in First Corinthians 9.20, he says this, To the Jews, I became like a Jew to win Jews to those under the law, like one under the law. Though I myself am not under the law, to win those under the law. So he, he submitted himself to the law to win those under the law, even though he himself was not under the law. And that's what Paul was teaching. And that's a fine line, of course. And you know that, just like in politics, people are not going to take your nuances kindly. They're going to abuse you and twist your words and make you say things you didn't say. And that's what's happening here. In Galatians 5.11, but Paul defends himself and he says, look, if I'm still preaching circumcision when I asked Timothy to get circumcised, or those four guys, to, to uh, if, I, if I paid for the vows of those four guys, if I'm still preaching the law, why am I still persecuted? Listen, the Jews wouldn't be doing what they're doing to me in every place except Philippi and Ephesus on my missionary journeys. They wouldn't be doing that to me. Of course, now I realize that hadn't happened yet in Galatians. He's only been on his first journey in Galatians. But he was still persecuted on that first journey. So he's saying, look, why... Am I being persecuted if I'm preaching the law? Nobody will come after me. The Jews would be happy with me if I was preaching the law. But I'm not preaching the law. I'm being persecuted. So therefore, I'm not preaching the law. So don't go around saying I am. In other words, you dumb legalists, you dumb Judaizers, my Jewish opponents, the rabbis, they know what I'm preaching. They know I'm preaching freedom from the law. law, And that's why they're so mad at me. If they can see it, why can't you see it? He says, if I preach circumcision, in that case, the offense of the cross has been abolished, in verse 11, Galatians 5. The cross is an offense. Romans 9, 33, Paul says this to the Romans. Why is that? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were by works. They stumbled over the stumbling stone. As it is written, look, I am putting a stone in Zion to stumble over and a rock to trip over. Yet the one who believes in him will not be put to shame, so... That's the offense of the cross. The cross is said to be a stumbling block to Jews. They could not imagine a Jewish Messiah nailed up on the cross as a, as a criminal. They were expecting a glorious political leader to lead them in victory over the Roman oppressors, and here he ends up on the cross, and you're trying to tell me, a Jew, that this guy is the Messiah? Come on. 1 Corinthians, Paul talks, tells the Corinthians in First Corinthians 1 Corinthians 23, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews, and foolishness to the Gentiles, stumbling block to the Jews the offense it's an offense to the Jews a stumbling block now let me go back to what I was talking about how Paul is not preaching circumcision but rather preaching expediency so they can win people to Christ I mentioned that but let me go into that a little bit further let's look at some scriptures that deal with this 1st Corinthians 7:18. was anyone already circumcised when he was called he should not undo his circumcision was anyone called which was possible by the way you can undo a circumcision medically even back then I've discovered was anyone called while uncircumcised? He should not get circumcised. Again, that states the principle. Circumcision circumcision uncircumcision doesn't matter. Just stay where you are. Don't worry about it. 1 Corinthians 7.20 Each person should remain in the life situation in which he was called. So there Paul shows that circumcision doesn't matter one way or the other. Now, to justify his requiring circumcision of Timothy and other people and him keeping the law sometimes, 1 Corinthians 9.20 to the Jews I became like a Jew, to win Jews. To those under the law, like one under the law? Though I myself am not under the, under the law. To win those under the law. In other words, for the sake of evangelism, I will keep the Jewish law to keep you from being offended. And by the way, that's what the same decision at the Jerusalem Council in Acts 15, that's exactly what happened there. We're not going to require the Gentiles to get saved because that would be kowtowing to legalism. But on the other hand, we're not going to go out of the way to offend Jews to hurt our evangelistic cause. So... Gentiles need to be solicitous of Jew, Jewish feelings and not do things that would violate their law and get them upset. Now, this fine distinction, of course, his enemies didn't exert themselves to discern the difference between circumcision for salvation and circumcision for expediency and evangelism. That's too much for them. Galatians 5.12, I wish those who are disturbing you might also get themselves castrated. That's my one of my favorite verses. That's because sometimes when you're engaged in theological polemics and, and such... You have to get a little harsh, like Paul did. And that's the first offense I, that, that that the heretics use. They say, you're not loving. Now, I had an uh, unfortunate experience with this. I forgot how many years it was dealing with hyper-preterists. Now, normally, I wouldn't pick on any heresy to, to jump on, except they were, they were interfering with a good friend of mine church and my conference I was putting on at the time. And, and I felt like a stand needed to be made against these guys. And a bunch of people that I was working with didn't see the need to. And so I was the bad boy. <laughs> so oh my gosh, the nasty things that were said about yours truly, scarred for life. But then when I would try to point out in certain strong language, that these guys are heretics or damnable heretics or whatever I said, I can't remember at the time, I, I said they were gangrenous. I used the words that Paul used to talk about Hymenaeus and Alexander, shipwreckers of the faith and so forth. And I can not tell you how many times people would come back and say, you're not loving them. you don't love people, you don't love people. And I try to say, well, I love the people in the churches that you're trying to wreck and whose faith you're trying to destroy. And finally, I wrote an article that was called Why It Is Perfectly Okay to so, Say Naughty Things About Heretical Preterists, Preterists. Put it up on a website, and the Preterist Archive, and a brother in the church that's being infected by the virus of hyperpreterism read it. And in that article, I said, hey, I'm tired of this love talk. Like, Like Tina Turner said, what's love got to do with this? And that brother loved that because he knew exactly what the hyper heretics tactics were. You don't love. You don't love. Well, you know, I like quoting scripture and I could have just said, Hey, hyper I wish you could cast. <laughs> Paul was loving, but he didn't love heretics, folks. He didn't love them at all. He wished they would be castrated. Oh, my gosh, what a terrible fate to be castrated. Now, castrated means cut off. Now, there's some options as to what cut off means. John Gill says it could mean cut off as to die. I wish that, that the that the Judaizers would die, cut off from the land of the living. Mm. And that would be pretty harsh, actually. I don't think that Paul meant that. It could mean cut off to be excommunicated. Well, and the 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 idea here is, look, Paul wishes that they would be excommunicated, kicked out of the church. People argue against that and say, "Well, he already had the authority. To ask the Galatians to cut teachers. Also, why would he be asking for something that was already that he already had the authority to do?" But the problem with that is, is that Paul, Paul actually did not have authority to ask the Judaizers to get kicked out of the church. Only local churches can do that. Apostles have no authority over excommunication decisions of local churches. So it hasn't got anything to do with excommunication. And besides, what's the context? The context is. Cutting the foreskin off. Circumcision, circumcision, circumcision is mentioned over and over again. So this is what Paul is talking about. As the NIV says, the Holman Christian Study Bible says, it means to be castrated. I wish those who are disturbing you might be castrated. Paul's sarcasm is evident. As the NIV Study Bible says, this is a great verse for those who say that Christians should never use sarcasm. Oh, really? Now, of course, Paul didn't really mean he wanted them to be castrated. He just wanted them to get lost. But he just, uh, he lets them hold it. We go to Galatians 5.13. For you were called to be free, brothers, only don't use this freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but serve one another through love. As I said at the beginning of this audio, the previous chapters are all talking about slavery under the law, and now he has switched to the new topic of being free outside from the law and what that entails. Before he gets talking about that freedom, he guards against antinomianism, as he often does. He says, only don't use this freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, in other words, for sin, so you can go out and Do sinful things he's done that several places in the scriptures romans six one what should we say then should we continue in sin so that grace may multiply of course not 1 peter two sixteen as god's slaves live as free people but don't use your freedom as a way to conceal evil he immediately guards against antinomianism galatians five sixteen I say then, walk by the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. Again, he says you're free to walk in the Spirit, and what's the result of that? You're not going to sin. You're not going to go out and carry out the desire of the flesh. And by the way, that verse is a great verse, which we won't get to till our next audio. But if you want to be righteous, walk by the Spirit. Don't keep the law. Walk by the Spirit. That's how you don't carry out the desire of the flesh. That's how you carry out the desires of righteousness. It's walking by the Spirit, not by the law. Jude 1.4, now this is not Paul, but this is Jude, says this, For some men who were designated for this judgment long ago have come in by stealth. They are ungodly, turning the grace of our God into promiscuity and denying Jesus Christ, our only Master and Lord. So there they've got freedom and they turn it into license, which, of course, we're not supposed to do. Notice that Paul in Galatians 5.13 calls the Galatians brothers, for you were called to be free brothers. He's chewed them out, but he's still using intimate words with them. Galatians 5.14, For the entire law is fulfilled in one statement, love your neighbor as yourself. Now for all covenant theologians who are so worried about new covenant theologians being antinomian because we believe we're under the law of Christ and not under the law of Moses, well, here's the law of Christ right here. The entire law is fulfilled in one statement, love your neighbor as yourself. You do that and you're going to take care of Moses' law, not to mention the law of Christ. Now when he says the entire law, He's probably talking about the Old Testament Mosaic Law because he's dealing with legalist Judaizers who are harping on that. And he's saying, look, you don't need to harp on Moses to me because I can just tell you how you fulfill Moses. Love your neighbor as yourself, which you guys apparently are not doing, you legalist Judaizers. Here's the here's the, here's the entire law right here. Leviticus 19.18. Do not take revenge or bear a grudge against members of your community, but love your neighbor as yourself. I am Yahweh. So Paul is quoting the law and he's saying, this is it. In one line here, love your neighbor as yourself. Now let's look at this idea of fulfilling the Old Testament law in the New Covenant. Matthew 7, 12. This is Jesus speaking. Therefore, whatever you want others to do for you, do also the same for them. This is the law and the prophet. In other words, take care to how you deal with other people. This is the law and the prophets. Do you want to keep the law? Look out for other people. Mark twelve thirty one. The second is, love your neighbor. This is when the Pharisee says, well, how, what are the laws? What's the most important law? And Jesus said the first is, love, love God. And the second is, love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other command greater than these. Love God, love your neighbor. That's how you fulfill the law. Matthew 19, 19, honor your father and mother. That's in the law. And love your neighbor as yourself. That's how you fill the law, loving your neighbor. Matthew 13, 9 through 10, the commandments. Do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not covet. This is Romans, I'm sorry, Romans 13, 9 through 10. The commandments, do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not covet, and whatever other commandment, all are summed up by this, love your neighbor yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Love, therefore, is the fulfillment of the law. Now you say, well, there's not enough content in that. Love, love, love is just a, just a wishy-washy, mushy feeling. No, love is actions, and you do things. And you say, well, but you have to have specific commands of what you do and what you don't do. That's true. But there's plenty of those commands in the New Testament. What Jesus commanded and what Paul commanded, you can't find anything in the law of Moses you can't find in the New Testament. And that's why Reformed theologians are constantly saying, in order for us to be sanctified, we've got to go back and look at Moses. Or, shall I humbly say, misguided. Now, notice when Paul is constantly talking about love your neighbor as yourself, he's just finished saying that he wishes the... Judaizers would castrate themselves. Is this a contradiction? No, because he's telling the Judaizers, you guys aren't loving anybody because when you start talking about law, 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 and I'm better than you because I'm keeping the law and you're no good because you're not keeping the law, that's not loving your neighbor. So Paul sees no contradiction between blasting heresy and loving your neighbor. No contradiction at all we go to verse 15, Galatians 5. Paul says this, but if you bite and devour one another, watch out, or you will be consumed by one another. Now, why does he just bring this up in the middle of a talk about legalism? I think that the reason is obvious, is because biting and devouring one another and consuming one another is a logical outflowing of following the law. Law-keeping breeds pride, self-righteousness, and a critical spirit, as the NIV Study Bible says. And all of that leads to strife. Now, I'm going to tell you something. You ever get into legalistic situations, and you will see it instantly. People will start hating one another. To Hades, to Gehenna with legalism. Legalism is a terrible, 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 terrible thing for Christians to get into. So get out of it. Walk in the Spirit. Get under the New Testament law of Christ. Read the New Testament. Read what, the Paul's, what Paul says and the other apostles and what Jesus says. You follow that, you follow that ethic, and you're going to be a transformed person. And people are going to see that there's a difference in your life that wasn't there before. Ladies and gentlemen, we have finished with Galatians 5, 1 through 15. In our next audio and in the last part of chapter 5, Paul is going to talk about walking in the Spirit talked about not walking in the flesh and not walking in the law, and now he's going to give the good news about what it's like to walk in the spirit. It's a whole different world than walking under the law. Stay tuned for that audio. Enjoy this one.